was the first employee at Terraformation. He's a serial technology entrepreneur and angel investor from Silicon Valley, having invested in over 100 technology startups. Prior to Terraformation, Yi was an early team member at PayPal and Slide. In his capacity as Chief of Growth at Terraformation, Yi supports business development, sales, capital markets, and Terraformation.org foundation teams. Terraformation is dedicated to restoring the plant's forest to solve climate change. The company builds and deploys tools to tackle the largest bottlenecks to mass-scale reforestation. Its technology includes off-grid seed banks that process and store millions of seeds, tracking and monitoring platforms to enable project transparency, solar power desalination, and more. Yi Li, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you. So glad to be here. So you're Chief of Growth at Terraformation. I mean, just explain to us, what are the bottlenecks that hold back the global forestry and how are you cutting through that noise? So Terraformation, first and foremost, is a forestry accelerator. We're trying to help the world's forestry organizations collectively plant a trillion trees in the next decade uh, and cover 3 billion acres of net new forest in order to reach that kind of scale. I mean, that's that's kind of a crazy number, right? Like a trillion. That's such, <laughs> it, it kind of rolls off the tongue, right? But that's a very, very large number. Uh, some of the very largest tree planting organizations in, in, in the world, like collectively plant something like half a billion to, to three quarters of a billion uh, trees per year. And that even that number sounds large too, but then you realize that's actually three full orders of magnitude smaller than the actual number we need to hit in the next decade, right? So we actually need to take all of the world's largest forestry organizations as a group and a thousand, you know, X, right? A thousand, multiply by a thousand of their efforts. So that's like a really, really very large undertaking. And I just can't underscore enough the scale at which we as a human species seek to operate right here when we talk about uh, tree planting and, and, and forestry. Uh, operations. So in order to reach that kind of scale, Terraformation has identified four different bottlenecks that hold back the world's largest forestry organizations to, to you know, be able to maintain that kind of scale. First and foremost is uh, seed supply, right? If you're trying to plant a trillion trees, you're trying to cover 3 billion acres. By the way, that's a land surface area the size of the continental United States plus Mexico. <laughs> right. So it's a very large surface area uh, of the planet. Having said that, thankfully, the planet is huge and we actually have many, many billions of uh, acres that are available for, for tree planting activities all around the world. But in order to cover that much area, we're going to need multiple trillions of seeds, of tree seeds. And at human societies are actually quite good at, at seed banking. We have major partnerships with groups like Kew Gardens, the Millennium Seed Bank and Botanical Gardens Conservation International, who, who generally focus on, I would say, agricultural seed supply. And so we have, you know, major stores of, of agricultural seeds. But when it comes to native tree seeds, we haven't just as, as societies, we just have not collected like enough quantity of seed to be able to go pursue very large scale tree planting operations. And so if we want to be able to cover a trillion trees, we have to have multiple trillions of native tree seeds available. And that's going to require a very concerted effort around seed supply. So that's one major initiative that Terraformation has undertaken. Um, and of course, just as you can imagine, right? Like there's a, there's a sequencing of things. Like you need to have the seeds before you can plant the trees. Trees need time to grow. So that that's why we're so focused on seeds now. It's really the tip of the spear or sort of the, the long pole in the tent, whatever metaphor you, you'd prefer. It's the first step, right? In, in kicking off the, these kinds of operations. So seed supply number one. Second key constraint is, or a bottleneck, is just labor, trained labor. If you think about the, the level of human effort 
We estimate that we're going to require tens of millions of trained foresters to work in this field. And today we have the whole planet has something like half a million to a million trained foresters, which is, again, rolls off the tongue, seems like a big number. There's a lot of training institutes that will offer a certificate or degree programs, vocational programs in the, the botanical knowledge and forest maintenance knowledge that's required to create a forest. But we still need to, to you know, or by orders of magnitude, right? Like grow that labor pool. And it's not like a crazy hard science to teach or, or, or to learn, but it does just require uh, people to actually be interested in forestry and to really take on forestry as a livelihood. So we view this second bottleneck as really raising a new generation of forest entrepreneurs and ideally bringing tens of millions of people into the space who are interested in carbon forestry, who are interested in native regenerative forestry to, to pursue this as a lifelong skill set, as a career opportunity. So that's the second bottleneck. Third a bottleneck that Terraformation is tackling is around carbon remote tracking and carbon standards. Today, this is just a, a really a sort of har publicly harped on sort of shortfall of, of today's carbon projects. It's just really hard, really expensive and somewhat slow to verify carbon stocks, to create baseline plans, and then to measure carbon sequestration above, above baseline over the period of years. Just to give an example, right, you can imagine if you've got, if you've got a carbon forest of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of hectares, and you've got a small team of human auditors who physically need to go visit a site, walk through the forest, right, count trees on either side of a forest transect, uh, and, and literally try to measure, you know, girth and breast height. GBH is a very typical measure of, of a tree trunk. And then to estimate carbon tonnage, right? Imagine having, you know, how, many, how much data do you have to collect as just manually in order to create a large enough sample with which to then estimate carbon sequestration. It's a really difficult and slow undertaking. So we need to speed that up. If you really want to be able to measure trillions of trees, then we need to have more automated ways, more remote sensing ways, ideally using drones, low-flying aircraft, satellites, soil probes, right? There's a lot of different technical efforts that can be undertaken to make carbon measurement and carbon verification a lot more accurate, a lot more um, remotely available, real time, and, and to account for biodiversity that's in the forests. The current standards that, that I just measured, right, or that I just mentioned, this idea of walking through a forest, measuring trees, girth, this focuses very much on, on the trunks of trees, which is a good thing, right? Trees are obviously like the whole point of, of the endeavor. Um, but one of the things that scientists, carbon scientists and, and, and forest scientists have pointed out is that the entire forest ecosystem actually captures a lot of carbon weight just through all the flora and the fauna, the, the, the canopy, the understory, the, the ground level plants, the mycelial networks in the soil, the bacterial life, right? All of the predators, the birds, the insects, right? Like all of those are carbon-based life forms. And if we could somehow capture measure the full carbon weight of forest ecosystems, right? If you go from degraded land that does not have tree cover to a lush, rich, mature forest ecosystem, you're doing a lot more than just growing trees. You're creating a whole ecosystem, all of which is carbon. And so if we had ways to measure the full biodiversity and carbon weight of a forest ecosystem, that could make projects a lot more efficient, right? In terms of getting credit, right? For all of the carbon tonnage that they're actually uh, sequestering. So carbon standards to, to, to capture all of that. And then fourth, but not least is uh, forced finance. Today, there, there have been, again, very exciting progress and, and, and announcements in the space. There's billions of dollars of capital that have been committed to carbon 
RFP programs that are, you know, corporate buyers like Facebook, Google, uh, Uber, D Delta Airlines, Tiffany's, right? There's all these companies that have made carbon neutrality or like carbon zero commitments. And it's exciting to see that they committed all these dollars to, to, to purchasing carbon. But you kind of can, as a forester, you can really only participate in those if you have a mature forest already, right? If you have carbon stocks that are verifiable and ready to sell. Same thing for like these forestry bonds and green bonds programs that are targeted at supporting forestry efforts. They're really geared toward operators who already have a large and mature forest and are looking to grow further, grow their holdings further. If you have a brand new team, you have like five or 10 people who have some conservation experience. You recently got title to or, or permit to work on a piece of land and you wanted to start a new forest, which is actually the thing that we need to do. We need to start for 3 billion acres of new forest, right? If you wanted to start a new forest, I, the sources of financing are actually somewhat thin, right? Like you can't go to your bank and, and ask for a loan to start uh, a forest, right? That's just not a form of finance that's really available. And there aren't classes of capital today that are really suited to early stage forestry. In many ways, this is actually an observation from my personal background from Silicon Valley. The space of forestry or forest finance today seems very analogous to what we saw in venture capital 60 or 70 years ago, where there were some ultra high net worth individuals. There were some very large institutions that were willing to make, you know, sort of growth stage or mature company investments, right? Like you, you already had a mature business and you wanted to start a franchise of that mature business, right? That would be a very typical sort of thing that would have gotten invested in 60 or 70 years ago. Um, but if you were starting a brand new company, it was difficult, right? And we even saw this in like the first web, you know, uh, a wave of web business internet investment where it would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to start a new website. It was like a very friction laden kind of process. It was hard to like, you know, get started as a new business, right? But uh, fast forward to today, it's very fast, very, a much easier process to start a new technology startup because there are classes of capital that specialize in supporting brand new businesses to start There's incubators and accelerators and training boot camps, right? And all these different ways that new entrepreneurs can come into the space and start a, a, a tech startup. That whole ecosystem of support for getting a tech startup, like that kind of ecosystem needs to come together for support of early stage forestry. And we think that's another key unblocking moment or a milestone that, or a bottleneck that Terraformation can help uh, alleviate. So a few questions off of that, because you really opened our minds to the whole process. Could you tell us about your CEO, Yishan Wong's experience at Silicon Valley and that how that might help you with uh, your efficiency and modeling of Terraformation's goals? And also, I'm just also curious, the number of trained foresters that you need to have, the seed grading process, can yeah. AI help with that if we can't train that number of foresters? Starting from the, from the beginning, just with our, my background and Yishan's background. So we are, we are very much creatures of Silicon Valley. Both of us kind of started our careers there. I personally, I grew up in Palo Alto, right in the, the, the heart of Silicon Valley, and then spent 25 years in, in technology ventures, you know, in, in and around the, the Valley. So yeah, I, I would say we're, we're technologists and we are sort of at, at heart, we have this ethos of, of massive scale. Sometimes people think about Silicon Valley as this this innovative or disruptive place where like new ideas come up. My experience has actually been a little bit different, which is Silicon Valley actually is a place where good ideas 
kind of get stolen or borrowed. But really the secret sauce to, to, to Silicon Valley is not like coming up with new ideas. It's actually taking a good idea that's already working, maybe observing it from another company or, or borrowing it from like a research lab or something, but then figuring out how to take that good idea and scale it to millions or billions of people. If you think about all of the success cases that come, you know, pop to mind when people think of Silicon Valley companies, what do you think? You think of what, Facebook, Apple, Google, right? Like Apple did not invent actually the graphical user interface right? Xerox Labs did. And what Apple did was figure out, hey, how do we take this idea that's working and, and scale it to make it accessible to billions of people, right? Even like the, the phones, right? The Apple, you know, the ubiquitous iPhone these days. Apple did not invent the touch surface. <laughs> Again, what Apple did was really figure out how do we manufacture this thing and couple it together with, with software that makes it accessible to billions of people. Google did not invent the search engine, actually. Right. <laughs> Same thing. Facebook did not invent the social network, but so the companies of Silicon Valley, the thing that we do in, in the Valley is really to take good ideas and then figure out how to scale them up. So Ishan and I in, in founding Terraformation very much wanted to, and sought out, right? Giants, broad shoulders of giants to stand on who had good ideas already about how to solve nature-based carbon sequestration problems. We talked with the Crowther lab. We talked to Dr. Sasan Sachi at, at, at the JPL Climate NASA Research Lab. Um, and like the scientists agree, right, that, that there's actually billions of acres of more tree carrying capacity for the planet. And we can actually significantly alleviate the worst symptoms of, of climate change if we were able to create a large enough nature-based carbon sink. And so really we're trying to, to keep everything that we do at Terraformation based off of the best of what science tells us and the best, the best of what's going to work, what's actually going to scale without negative side effects. And then to just figure out the scaling part of it, because that's really what Silicon Valley does, right? Really well. Your second question about AI is really interesting. AI is, is maybe a, like a maligned a sort of a space these days, right? There's a lot of folks who, who talk about AI in, in a, a very worrisome or fearsome kind of way about, you know, replacing human value and taking away jobs or even worse, do, doing, doing uh, uh, other tasks. Uh, everything from automated trading that's gone wrong in the stock market to like, you know, fighting wars or whatever. But let's hold aside the sort of sci-fi dystopia version of AI and, and let's talk about what AI actually does. I've actually worked a whole bunch on AI systems and machine learning systems. The fundamental thing that AI does really well is to automate tasks that it, it can be trained at, right? To recognize a certain type of image or to recognize a certain type of language. And that's a thing that I think can really help us in, uh, in, in this third area, this third bottleneck that I just, that I mentioned a little earlier, earlier on around carbon tech, if you're really trying to figure out what kind of tree is that from a satellite photo, right? What species is that? How healthy is that tree? That's a kind of task that AI could be trained to be really good at. If you have a microphone array in a forest and you're trying to teach it to understand how many bird species am I, am I hearing right now? How many insect species am I hearing right now? That's definitely a task that you could train an AI to listen to recordings and, and then through machine learning, teach it to recognize individual species and be able to count them. So I think that there's really dramatic things that AI and machine learning could do for forestry just in, in counting things, right? In, in identifying and counting species of trees or species of plants or species of uh, flora and fauna. And I think that could be really powerful because again, one of the most difficult parts of forestry today is actually counting right? Counting trees, counting carbon tons, and being able to figure out the correlation between those. And that's exactly the kind of thing that AI and machine learning could actually be really 
uh, powerful and impactful for. So I'm actually quite hopeful when it comes to forestry for the possibility of applying machine learning to, to uh, accelerate uh, our efforts. So, but still in terms of the numbers, a, tr a trillion trees in the next, is it the next 10 years that we'd need to do that? The objective has been to, by 2050, to have that many trees be mature, to have absorbed that much carbon and, and during their during their growth cycle. And if you want to have a 20 year period of growth for before you, the world gets to 2050, then then there's about 30 years between now and, and, and 2050. So if 20 years of those 30 have to be growing trees, then the first 10 have to be planting. So you kind of start with the end in mind and just, just backtrack back to what actions do we need to take today in order to get to the end we need, we were trying to aim for by 2050. In terms of yeah. your partner organizations, what is the criteria? Yeah. Just explain a little bit about how those seed banks and the, the greenhouses, how does that work and how do they get involved? Yeah. Uh, so I think this philosophy of trying to remain very true to, to science and to be data-driven and to look for solutions that work, right? That's really core to, to our approach. And so I would say the same thing applies to where we place a seed bank or where we place a, a plant nursery. We're looking for the highest potential reforestation zones, the areas where they're the most native tree to collect from, and the places where there's just sufficient land to be able to, to create reforestation uh, projects. And so the, the intersection of those, those three things, right? Land availability, seed availability, and the, the right biomes to be able to, to reforest, they lead us to, to identify uh, certain on the planet that are the, the best sites. And good news is every single continent has swaths of this type of land. They generally, of course, will tend to be in an equatorial uh, sort of latitude band. So the equator plus minus, right? Some, some degrees of latitude. And so that central strip of the, uh, of the planet is, is the target. And as I said, every single continent has, has the ability to contribute to this mission. And there's actually a bunch of active research, like academic research that, that's going on in the space. And tell us about some of those projects you have in Africa, Kilimanjaro, uh, in Hawaii itself. Hawaii is an interesting place to talk about because, you know, it is, it is obviously an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean <laughs> and we often get some surprised questions about really, you guys look at Hawaiian company, huh? Okay. Why is that? And so for us choosing Hawaii as a, as a headquarters was actually a strategic choice. The island of Hawaii, the big island of Hawaii is actually really big. It's two and a half million acres. So it's a pretty large land surface area. And because it's so volcanic and has very strong uh, trade winds that blow across it, there's these mountain ridges that run through the middle of the island and a very distinct wet side of the island and a very distinct dry side of the island. And then at different al altitude bands and at different places around the circumference of the island, there's, there's basically 10 of the planet's 13 biomes all present in one place. And so that makes it a fairly magical place to find uh, degraded forest uh, and reforestation opportunities. And on one piece of land, on one island, you can actually do a dry desert environment reforestation project. And you can do a human degraded, you know, urban nature interface uh, restoration project. And you can do a wet tropical rainforest restoration. You can do high altitude forest restoration, et cetera. So it's a really interesting place to have showcase or demonstration projects. And that's actually what we've done. So we have five different sites on the big island of Hawaii. We're operating multiple nurseries and seed banks there. And we're doing, we're sh kind of showcasing multiple styles of reforestation using different species of trees that are altitude and regionally appropriate. And 
you know, if you ever see the sites, you'll just visually, it's super distinct, right? Like, like a dry land desert style of restoration where it's, you know, rocky rubble ground and the winds blowing, you know, 70 to 80 miles an hour in some gusty days. Uh, and it rains two or three days a year, right? Completely different looking kind of an environment, trees and plants that, that go in that kind of an environment versus the wet side of the island where it's really mild and rains, you know, practically 350 days a year, like completely different look and feel for, for these projects. And it's very evocative to be able to do projects there in Hawaii. You asked about Kilimanjaro as well. And so we've act, that's one of 30 different project sites that we are now supporting around the world. And we've have, I mean, they're all over the place. The projects that we support everywhere from, you know, New Zealand, Peru, Tanzania, Ghana, Armenia, Ukraine. And again, one of the things that we find just back to this, this idea of like the variety or diversity of, of projects, doing a mangrove project is completely different than doing, you know, a central Asia, uh, very biodiverse restoration project. But the key for us, the, the common theme is always find native plants that are appropriate for that region or for that biome, um, and that are going to be self-sustaining, right? Because our mission is a long-term mission, right? Like it's a 30, 50, ideally century long forest that, that we're, that we're developing. We don't want to plant trees in the next 10 years just to have them cut down, right? We want to have these forests self-sustained. And if that's the thing you're trying to do, then it's really important to pick native and endemic tree species that will, you know, create the right ecosystem for long-term durability in each biome. I was wondering. With needing to plan so much for not only the renewable energy, but also the land dedicated to restoration, how do you balance between those? For renewable energy versus restoration. So number one, I would wonder how often these two land uses end up in contention. So for example, for the 3 billion acres that, that were of net new forest that we're trying to create, I would actually wonder how much of that same exact land would be needed or, or, or would be better put to use for solar power, wind farms, nuclear power, et cetera, other forms of renewable energy. But I would just say from, just from our, our own experience with having mixed these two use cases together at our North Kohala Hawaii restoration site, we were able to build on a 55 acre, about a half acre solar panel facility that then powers the entire rest of the restoration efforts there. And in fact, actually produces enough power probably to power like an even larger restoration site. So I would say even on, you know, a relatively small forestry sort of demonstration site, the actual coverage of renewable power requirements, like the actual solar panel coverage that, that that's needed is relatively modest compared to the overall acreage of the site. So even in cases where there's direct contention and overlap, where you want to do both renewable power generation and forestry at, you know, in the same place, it seems like it can be done in a compatible way. Maybe one other sort of mode of operation that, that I've heard about, we haven't actually ex uh, explored this ourselves at Terraformation, but I have heard about agricultural uses of solar panels effectively uh, to produce shade over agricultural fields underneath which you can grow shade grown crops. And there's many forms of commercially valuable crops that actually do better in, in shade or partial shade. And so that's a, that, that's another potential way to kind of mix plants and solar panels or renewable power together. You mentioned that there's the goal of the 3 billion acres. And do you think it's better to try and grow really large forests or for there to be many forests? And just to underscore, right, 3 billion acres is, it's around the size of the contiguous 48 United States plus Mexico. 
right? So it's a very large land surface area. And it's not that land though, is not all chunked together just in one place. It's, it's not like we have to cover literally the United States of Mexico and then call it a day. Like the, the pieces of land that are best to reforest and that have the highest restoration potential usually are degraded or recently uh, altered pieces of land that used to have trees in the last hundred thousand years. I uh, used to have forests in the last hundred thousand years, but just today for, for a variety of reasons are not. So those lands tend to be concentrated in sort of equatorial latitude bands, just north and south of, of, of the equator. And every single continent actually has chunks of this kind of land that, that are available. Having said that, it's definitely better. And re really a recent uh, research on forests and, and, and their interaction with the atmosphere have shown some really interesting signs that, the, that we, should, we should follow as a science or data-driven organization. The, what the scientists are telling us is that if you can grow contiguous pieces of forest that are large enough that they will tend to alter cloud cover above the forests. Right. And that's a really, really interesting and powerful discovery, because if we're able to put together forests that sequester carbon and alter cloud cover above the forest to create more clouds, then we can alter planetary albedo and actually have a cooling effect as well. So not only will forests sequester carbon, which is, of course, the, the, the greenhouse gas that's trapping heat on, on, on in the planet, but also be able to reflect heat back into space. That would be a truly marvelous geoengineering solution. Right. So if we could put together large enough continuous contiguous swaths of forest, then you, you start to get those kinds of sort of albedo plus carbon sequestration effects. And that's really something that the terraformations are eager to, to explore. Now, the, that doesn't mean though we have to cover like entire countries, right? With, with, with trees, it's okay to have, you know, mixed use kinds of zones. I believe the study studied 3000 acre contiguous uh, swaths of forest and was, were able to detect meaningful changes, right? In, in cloud cover and in downwind rainfall as a result. And speaking of new technologies, you have a desalination program. And I'm also curious about whether you might be partnering or working with any uh, drone planting organizations. Let's talk about desalination first. So desalination is, to me, this is another example of the kind of, you know, approach from Silicon Valley that, that, that I spoke of earlier, which is take a proven piece of technology, take a proven approach and just figure out how to scale it, right? So Terraformation itself, we do not create solar panels. We do not create water filters, right? We, 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 these are all commodity technologies and very, you know, 50 year long histories of safe operations, right? So we're really just right standing on the shoulders of giants, right? In, in those spaces. And I do have to say solar panel technology has come such a long way, even in just the last decade, it's really quite incredible now how the dollar per uh, kilowatt hour generated is really decreasing and the ratings of panels that you can, anybody can just buy, you know, online and put on their own roof today is really marvelous. The rate of advancement in, in the space um, is, is starting to go exponential, which is what you get, which is what you hope for, right? In a mature technology stack. And that's actually one of the reasons why I think Silicon Valley companies tend to focus on technologies that work and just scale them. <laughs> so anyway, back to, back to solar desalination. So because of these advances in the underlying technology, it's now it, in places like Hawaii, it's actually measurably cheaper to take salt water from a brine uh, well which we have on our restoration site, use solar power to desalinate it ourselves. It's cheaper to do that than it is to, you know, pay the local utility company to drag like another, you know, big plumbing project uh, line and, and, and start to buy power or start to buy water from the local uh, municipal utility. That's incredible, right? Because it, it really points the way 
I, I think for many different project sites around the world to say it's actually more efficient and effective for us to either pull in seawater or to dig wells and to be able to pull groundwater and then use solar power on site off grid to be able to create our own water supply than to be more efficient to do that than it is to, you know, work with our municipal utility or, or state or national level utility to create like a, like an externalized uh, source of water. So I, I think that's actually going to be the infrastructure, the water infrastructure for the world, um, going forward, right? Like more decentralization of water supply, more decentralization of power supply, especially as these sort of off-grid and renewable power solutions are able to be deployed in, in different places. So, um, Really excited about that, about the evolution of that, of that technology. Let's talk about drone seeding then. So for drones, there are good use cases for drones. And we are, we're friends with the folks at Drone Seed and Dendra and Flash Forest. They've come out and take, taken a look at our sites and we've been able to supply them uh, with, with, for their projects. And so we're friends, we're partners with the drone planting companies. And we definitely like in areas that it is appropriate to use a drone. We 100% would love to use that kind of technology to accelerate like the propagation um, and planting process. Having said that, it's just not always appropriate to use a drone, especially if you're trying to work on degraded pieces of land or very dry, desertified regions. It's difficult to just spray seeds out and then just kind of hope or expect them to, to take root and to, and to, and to germinate and, and, and grow into mature seeds. Very often what we find is if you just sprinkle seeds on, on dry land, all you're doing is actually feeding rodents, right? You're not actually going to produce, you know, viable trees. So in, depending on the conditions, you may need to have a human being get out there, dig a hole, put a, a nursery raised seedling in the ground and actually mulch it and, and, you know, create better growing environments for these young trees. And so that so just, it kind of really depends, I, I think, on the biome that you're working in. There definitely are really good use cases for drone seeding. For example, the drone seed company, one of their specialty areas is actually forest fire recovery. And that's a perfect use case, right? If you've got an area where standing forest has already been growing by itself, it's, it's suited to the biome, but some temporary or, or ephemeral disaster, like a forest fire has caused a, a number of trees to, to die off. Well, sprinkling seeds or, or, or seed pucks in, into the right locations in that kind of situation, you should really expect, right? Like new seedlings to, to pop back up again. And so that's a great use case for, you know, aerial seeding. But yeah, we'll, we will use the technology when it's appropriate and we'll partner with folks to, with the right technical partners to make that happen. But we have to pick the right approach for each biome. I was wondering, you mentioned being flexible to the area you're in and responding to what's needed. In areas where there are indigenous groups, do you think terraformation can assist in helping guarantee their autonomy? I I think terraformation can be a part of helping those groups secure land tenure and economic autonomy, political autonomy, gender uh, equality, et cetera. There's so many um, important factors, I think, in creating sustainable societies. Terraformation can only be one piece of that, but we 100% support efforts for local groups to share in the co-benefits and to have community benefits from forestry projects. So the ways that terraformation can help, of course, is just by improving the value of the land and creating economic viability out of pieces of land that may be underutilized or degraded today. When you create a forest, you create a lot of economic opportunity. Of course, most fundamentally, the land itself becomes more attractive and, and more, more value. You know, if, if I were to give you, right, like an acre, offer you, I can give you an acre of desert or I can give you an acre of forest, like, which would you pick, right? Like, Intuitively, everybody knows to pick the forest because forests are just more valuable, you know, area for area than the non-forested regions. And the reasons for that, 
become really clear when you think about the economics. If you have land that has forest in it, that means there's other life forms. That means that the biomes are, are active there. You can graze cattle. That's an opportunity called silvopasture. You can do sustainable harvest of timber. Uh, a rotational a harvest of timber in a way that doesn't deplete the forest. You have agroforestry opportunities to grow crops underneath the shade of hardwood trees. There's many modes of economic value creation that a forest has that non-forested lands do not. And we fundamentally view forests as economic engines. And we really want to make sure that the folks who live in and around and participate, you know, directly in, in the creation of that forest, we want to make sure that they are primary uh, recipients of the benefits uh, of that forest. So with the way we structure contracts with forestry groups is to make sure that they are the ones in control of the project. This is, it's not that Terraformation or some other foreign company drops in and like suddenly owns the forest and, and extracts a bunch of resources from it. It's very much the, the other way around. We want to make sure that local groups are the owners and operators of their own forests and that Terraformation is a, is an aiding force to, to accelerate their efforts and to, to help them. My name is Delaney Foster. I'm a current student at Boston University and I'm majoring in marine science. Yi Li spoke about the many fields that intersect when it comes to reforestation efforts, whether it is forestry science, AI, remote sensing, or new innovation leading the pathway to tomorrow. In my experience with environmental education and advocacy, technology and the environment are more often than not placed as opposites to each other if not opponents. Their relationship is complicated, with one side overlooking the other, yet not being able to have either without them both. Together, they can do so much good. Innovation and technology is necessary. The environment needs them. Yes, we need seeds and we need water, but we need the desalination of water. We need to have our energy needs met and more. It is through innovation that many issues facing the world have been overcome, and it's how many more will be too. Terraformation to aspiration is a representation of the successful combination of innovation and the environment. But outside of that, the focus on the new generation is something that struck me. It's really hard for young people to find their place, especially in the vastness that is any field, whether it's computer science, AI, environmental science, or something else. This is something that people my age struggle with, yet it's the acknowledgement that we are welcome, that our aspirations, our hopes, our innovation are something people not only want, but want to encourage. The continued acceptance for other groups of people makes me confident in the vision that Terraformation represents and that people will be inspired to follow in their tracks. And speaking of sustainable societies and economic engines, you know, we're living in the century of the city, a decade of transformation, and cities are the main drivers of creativity and innovation, consuming 75% of the world's natural resources and account for, as you know, 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. So what do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy, transport, resource, and waste management? food, pollution. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's a quite a large question. Uh, yeah. What are, you know, do you have planting projects in cities? You know, what kind of rapid scale adaptations need to take place? So you could consider my answer here just for more personal opinion rather than like a, a company stance. For what it's worth, I personally, I love cities and I, I feel like the, the research is quite clear in terms of squeezing the maximum efficiency of lowest watts consumed 
per human, <laughs> right? If, if you wanted to measure efficiency that way, that cities actually are the best opportunity for us to centralize distribution of power, food, clothing, employment, right? And if we were able to actually make cities more efficient, that we would be able to dramatically reduce humanity's carbon footprint and that we'd be able to do that much more effectively by concentrating on, on where, you know, where people are concentrated, I guess, or focusing on where people are concentrated rather than, you know, trying to disperse people, <laughs> right? So I, I actually very much appreciate support, right? And, and this is more of a societal thing, I guess, right? Just but people have, have decided that, you know, to grouping together in cities is a more efficient mode of, of living. So I actually think that's a good thing. And I think that Terraformation's mission is complementary, maybe to urbanization as a, as the trend, um, to take the sort of rural areas of the world, to take the, the, the areas of highest re reforestation potential. And I really applaud a lot of the efforts to, you know, electrify power grids, to make transportation grids within cities, to make logistics grids within cities more efficient, to make all the different modes of, of, of supply transfer more efficient between cities. So those are, I, I think, really critical aspects uh, and just complementary aspects of emissions reductions focused on urban areas and carbon sequestration outside of cities. So that's the way I would look at it. And what are you looking forward to, you know, five, 10 years down the line for terraformation? You know, what, what's on track? Oh, my goodness. Well, Terraformation's mission is definitely beyond a 10-year plan, right? Like, we, we know. This, the, you can look at the carbon uh, emissions curves and you can look at the, the, the temperature projections that come out of that. Carbon scientists are already telling us loud and clear, this is not a 10-year fight, right? This is going to be a 50, 100, maybe even multiple centuries fight. This is clearly a multi-generational effort, point, point being. So when I think about Terraformation's own trajectory in this multi-generational effort to, to abate climate change, I view our efforts right now as really just laying the foundation. We're trying to enable future generations to have the right tools to be able to control climate more proactively. And as you think about the future and education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what teachers and life lessons have been important to you? Oh my goodness. I'm going to go very cliche for this one. My kids, I think are just my, my muses on thinking about the future. If you have, t I, so I have teenage kids and they will ask very poignant questions, right? And I, I know their interests, right? Of course, they like Minecraft as much as any other kid does, but they also, they're really into art and drawing and they have these amazing creative sides to them. And when I think about like what is the best use of their time when they ask questions to me of, hey, Baba, what should I do when I grow up? You want everybody on, on the planet to have creative uh, outlets, to have product productivity outlets and to be able to pursue their passions, right? And so I really struggle, right, with this idea of climate change affecting their livelihoods and to the point where maybe they have to worry about food supply, maybe they have to worry about water supply. And that to me was a huge motivator to work myself on climate change because I don't want them to, to have to worry about basic necessities and end up, you know, curtailing, right? Like potentially curtailing their own creative or, or, or productive outlets. And so that's just, a, I know sort of a microcosm of a personification of like a, a much broader global issue, but to me, it really brings it home. And that's the way I think about it. Well, thank you, Yi Li and Terraformation for identifying the key bottlenecks holding back global forestry and for your carbon sequestration initiatives to restore Earth's forests. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischowski Foundation. 
This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Delaney Foster, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviewer producer on this podcast was Delaney Foster. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the Climate Change Solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.